Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, I will be interviewing Susan Crawford, professor at Harvard Law School and author of the book and also the name of today's show, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. Susan Crawford is the John A. Riley Clinical Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and author of Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. She previously was Obama's special assistant to the President for Science, Technology, and Innovation Policy and co-led the FCC transition team between his and the Bush administrations. Earlier in her career, Crawford was a partner at Wilmer Cutler and Pickering. As an academic, she teaches courses about climate adaptation and public leadership. Crawford is the author of several books, including Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age, and Fiber, The Coming Tech Revolution and Why America Might Miss It. In the coming decades, at least 13 million coastal U.S. residents will have to pack their bags and move from their homes. Rising sea levels and superstorms put lives at risk and cause billions of dollars in damages. In the popular tourist town of Charleston, South Carolina, climate denial, widespread gentrification, overdevelopment, and racial issues compound. The city, like so many other coastal regions across the world, has no workable plan to relocate its most vulnerable populations away from the path of harm. Harvard Law professor and author Susan Crawford tells the story of a city that has played a central role in this country's painful racial history since the early 1800s. And now, as the waters rise, the city stands at the intersection of climate and race. In her book, Susan Crawford points out a well-researched call for climate adaptation and mitigation guided by Black community leaders whom she documents with in-depth narratives. Some say a seawall is the answer. Others find the suggestion to be an expensive undertaking that falls short of impending climate predictions. So what would it mean to uproot an entire town due to rising sea levels and flooding neighborhoods? Today we discuss the issues Charleston and other similar cities face and how long-term planning and respectful engagement and treatment of local communities of color can result in necessary solutions. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guest, Susan Crawford, Harvard Law School professor and author of Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Thanks, Jessica. It's an honor to be here. It's great to have you. I, this is going to be an exciting conversation. Um, I think some of our listeners might know that I'm from the Carolinas. And I really am looking forward to talking about your book and what is going on in Charleston and, and sort of across across the nation here. Susan, you're you're going to discuss the important topics in your book that is named Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. And I want to start by painting a picture of Charleston, South Carolina. 
Can you provide us a description of the topography of that area, how large it is, or what about the colonial structures in the Southern Peninsula? It's a gorgeous place. Well, imagine how beautiful it appeared to a group of people getting off a boat in 1670, thereabouts, from England. Uh, they'd shown up with slaves, enslaved people, and were landing on what has now become the tip of the historic peninsula of Charleston. At that point, it's just a sandbar with waving marsh grasses and marsh all, all around it. That small peninsula, what we now think of as the historic city of Charleston, is about six square miles. It uh, Most of it over time has been filled in the marsh has been covered with trash and human remains, all kinds of junk to <laughs> provide the substructure of that historic peninsula. And over the centuries since that first landing, Charleston has sprawled over its um, marshlands to the east and west of the peninsula and now covers about 125 square miles, give or take. So 90% of the population of the city of Charleston actually lives off the historic peninsula and a very small number of people and now almost exclusively white people live on the historic peninsula, which is about six to nine mi uh, square miles. The beautiful large houses that people think of when they're visiting tourists are on the southern tip of that peninsula over, again, what used to be marshland mostly. And you just alluded to this. In your book, you say that Charleston is emblematic of the divisions of race and politics. Can you explain the significance of the tortured racial and slave trade history of Charleston, South Carolina? It's important to think of Charleston with a kind of moral horror. Charleston is the place where 40% or so of all the enslaved people who were forced to come to America first stepped foot. And after the slave trade was officially outlawed, the transatlantic slave trade in 1808, Charleston became a huge focus of our domestic slave trade. And its economy was built on the backs of enslaved people. Uh, there were giant plantations to the east and west of the historic peninsula that were used for farming uh, rice and indigo. And Charleston was a majority black place uh, for mo most of its history. After the Civil War, the historic peninsula was flooded by free black people who came there to make their fortunes and find a comfortable place to live and find a job mostly along the waterfront. And Charleston remained, the peninsula itself remained majority black until really very recently when over the last three decades or so, the population flipped with very large-scale development and gentrification and displacement of the Black residents of Charleston off the historic peninsula and into places farther inland. Charleston was also the place where the Civil War began. The secessionists had been meeting in Columbia, South Carolina, and they decided that Charleston had better hotels and restaurants, so they moved and held their meetings in Charleston and launched the Civil War from there. That's a that's a pretty intense history. And I, you know, I don't know if everyone knows, you know, that and, and why people really need to check out your book. Let's talk about the current social and environmental struggles and then their connection to the rising sea levels and climate crisis ramifications that people in Charleston are experiencing. So you just spoke about the slave trade history of Charleston, South Carolina. In the 1970s, Charleston was, as you said, a majority of black city and now it's mostly white. 
what are the current racial, economic, and development realities that have shaped the Charleston that we see today? Charleston has experienced explosive growth. A lot of retirees from the North, mostly white people, have moved there. More than three times as many people move to Charleston every day as any other place in the United States. And since the 70s, and largely under the leadership of former Mayor Joe Riley, it has seen uh, enormous development as a tourist center. So today, 7 million tourists a year visit Charleston, and its economy is largely based on that tourism and also on property tax, like all cities uh, in the United States. It's very dependent on that. But the state of South Carolina requires Charleston to rely almost completely on property tax in order to provide city services. So it's a place of growth, of development, of tourism, and of displacement. How far out from the heart of Charleston does this urban sprawl spread? And what has been the effect of the quality of life, transportation, and and really economic disparity? Charleston is really America in small. You can think of it that way. That little peninsula is like a tiny Manhattan with boroughs on the outside. The boroughs uh, cover lots and lots of marshland, much of it very low. Really, we haven't talked about this yet, but most of the land on the peninsula, or let's put it this way, a third of the houses and businesses on that historic peninsula are at five feet or less above sea level. And then off the peninsula, most of that land is around 10 feet or so above sea level. So very, very, very low. That whole topography is covered with coastal rivers and marshes, and it's like uh, 40,000 interconnected watersheds. So the sprawl, which is substantial, covers a ton of marshland, is very low, almost no public transportation in this area, many, many cul-de-sacs and developments, and very, very congested traffic situations. So when the current mayor, Mayor Tecklenburg, entered office in 2016, he thought his main problem was going to be traffic. It has turned out that he's had to cope with a lot of flooding and some major storms since he got there, uh, which has triggered thinking about what's going to happen to Charleston, South Carolina, as the sea levels continue to rise. And that was my next question, you know, from an environmental perspective, what is currently happening to the peninsula and that marshland that is Charleston, South Carolina? And I was going to, my, my brain was like, are we supposed to build on marshland? <laughs> well, weirdly, our own federal government effectively subsidizes or encourages people to build on floodplains. And Charleston has seen a lot of that building, really all of it is in a floodplain, meaning that it expects to experience a, a major storm, about a, the chance of that is at least 1% a year. And actually that percentage is increasing rapidly. Charleston's seeing a lot of plain old tidal flooding. In 2022, it flooded 70 times and just from high tide flooding. And in 2019, it flooded 89 times. And we know that come 2050 or so, that flooding is going to rapidly accelerate. It's going to be flooding five or 10 times as much as it does today as the seas rise. Charleston will be seeing about three feet of sea level rise by, let's say, 2070, and at least five feet by the end of the century. So given the extraordinarily low-lying topography of the city of Charleston and the crazy amount of development there, it is facing a sea level rise crisis. 
it is likely that much of the region will be chronically inundated by about 2070. Or in other words, that the flooding will be so constant and the groundwater, by the way, is so high that the that flooding will have nowhere to go and it'll be miserable for the people who are living there. God. So what's the government doing? I mean, what's Charleston? What's South Carolina government? What's the federal government? You said the federal government allows us to build in floodplains. I mean, what 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 are they doing? What's what have they done to protect Charleston and the surrounding communities? There's a seawall, right? There's well, a seawall proposal project. Well, Does this pencil yeah. out? I know we sort of come to helpless laughter when we talk about this, and and I really just want to keep the focus on the misery of of people's lives, especially for poor low-income people and Black residents of Charleston and some heavily concentrated areas of uh, poverty on the peninsula. There's still a few there and in those outlying suburbs. The city has no real plan. Uh, They are engaged in negotiations with the Army Corps of Engineers to build a giant seawall 12 feet tall encircling just the peninsula. And remember that 90% of the population of Charleston doesn't live on that peninsula, so it wouldn't protect them. That wall is being planned based on an estimation of just 18 inches or maybe two feet of sea level rise and on a planning horizon of 2050. So a very blinkered view of uh, Charleston's future. It is also planned only to protect that historic peninsula from storm surge. So the giant walls of water that come with accompany storms. It is not planned to protect anybody in that region from the persist, the heavy rainfall that is already happening and is likely to increase rapidly. And those plain old high tide, you know, surges that will arrive routinely twice a day. So they've got a plan. It's a seawall, but uh, there are lots of problems with that. Doesn't protect everybody, doesn't protect against everything and will be outmoded by the time it's finished by the rapidly accelerating uh, sea level rise that's coming. So the the city can say to other people, look, we're planning, we're we're ready, we're getting ready, but it that plan is really insufficient. And in the meantime, the city government, because it has to, is encouraging ongoing coastal development, in particular, a giant development on the historic peninsula next to the Cooper River that's going to include 1,600 new condos, 600 hotel rooms, half a million square feet of retail and office space in a part of the peninsula that used to be in the 18th century, completely in the river. I mean, I know the area a little bit, obviously not as well as you, but I I know the area. In in my mind, I'm like, where do you put this? Where are they putting it? Like, where is their area to put this? Well, look, humans are capable of enormous self-deception. And Right now, Charleston is not alone in its denialism and boosterism. It has this roaring tourist trade, doesn't want to scare the tourists. It is kind of a Confederate Disneyland right now. I know that's a horrifying phrase, but one of the Black residents of Charleston I talked to gave me that insight. It's a Confederate Disneyland, and it's about to be SeaWorld. So their plan, such as it is, is to just keep going full tilt with their current economic ventures until, I suppose, reality smacks them in the face and they have to consider moving or maybe building some canals. The book that I've written is aimed at encouraging a much more 
dignified and respectful treatment of the residents of Charleston, which would incorporate a lot of long-term planning for, and a lot of consultation about that planning for ways to decommission parts of the coastline that will have to be abandoned in the decades to come gradually and, uh, you know, buying people out of their properties if they have invested in them, finding holistic processes that would help renters move out of the wave, rising waters, especially consulting with the Black residents of Charleston who are routinely left out of planning processes and collectively planning to move inland. And look, uh, at least 10 million Americans are facing this cliff Charleston just gives us a chance to think in advance about all the processes that will be needed to get out of the way. Before we go to the break here in a couple, uh, few minutes, and where we're going to come back from the break and talk about what that respectful treatment looks like, what that long-term planning looks like, just a couple questions on this the seawall situation here. I just want to reiterate uh, what you were saying, like there's, there's sea level rise. And then there's storms. But when we talk about sea level rise, we're not just talking about all the storms coming in. We're talking about something that is persistent and going to stay consistently, not just come every, you know, during the fall when the storms are usually a little bit more prevalent. Correct? Like this is this this is just going to continue to rise and rise and rise. Let's put it this way. Today's flood is tomorrow's high tide. So a, a normal high tide in a few decades, will be presenting standing water on the streets of the Charleston region and highways that they'll need to evacuate. It'll just become uncomfortable and progressively more and more miserable for people to live there. Look, the uh, very wealthy people who have built second houses on Kiowa Island, it's a barrier island off uh, Charleston Peninsula, will have somewhere to go. They'll just get in their private planes and fly to their other homes. But there will be a lot of people, the burden of all of this misery will fall very heavily on the shoulders of lower income and people and people of color in this region. And they won't have anywhere to go or any particular funds to help them get there. And that's what we as a country should be worried about. And just finally, and we're going to get into this more after the break, but like this seawall, this this idea that it could be part of the solution, does it even financially pencil out when compared to the other financial invest that investments that should be made and just putting it out? We are going to get into more of those details, but does it actually pencil out? I'm, my concern is that we're going to end up with hundreds of Katrinas in the coming decades because the Army Corps' predictions for sea level rise are out of whack with the rest of the federal government and are extraordinarily conservative. For example, the Army Corps' plan for Charleston pencils out only because it's being built to this very low standard and because they don't want to mess with the freeways that land on the peninsula. So it's it's planned in a way that makes it apparent that the seawall will be outmoded in just a few decades. And that's going to happen in hundreds of communities where the Army Corps has similar plans across the country. Just very small segments of the population will be protected. Only the places that have higher value properties in them are planned for protection by the Army Corps and everybody else will be left to fend for themselves. At it, And we will have wasted billions of dollars on this armoring of just a portion of the coastline. 
Thank you for that. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about you know, the respectful treatment, the long-term planning, the consultation. What can we do about this and how can we protect the communities? We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio and all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you're listening to Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm, with host Jessica Aldridge and guest Susan Crawford, Harvard Law School professor and author. Susan, we have been talking about Charleston, the rising sea levels, the book that you have written, and I want to just swing back around at the top of this break here and just, you know, remind our listeners, what does the rising sea levels, sinking land, and overdevelopment mean? for the safety, land accessibility, and property rights of the community in those areas? We know that especially the East Coast of the United States is profoundly threatened by sea level rise. And if we're willing to confront our future, we have to recognize that at least 13 million Americans are going to have to leave their beloved coastal properties. And this will be properties or places they rent, places they feel deeply attached to. There's a reason why those guys in 1670 (laughs) set up shop next to the water, even though their English funders urged them to move inland where it'd be safer. People love living by the water and it is going to be necessary for lots of Americans to move inland. And what I'm pointing to is the requirement that we worry about the least able to cope with that situation among all Americans who are lower income Americans largely and people of color and particularly this population in Charleston, black residents of Charleston. These people have, they're not just, you know, masses of ants, which is somehow how I think policymakers are thinking about them. They have lives and attachments. It's almost as if we need to be thinking of a giant network of hospice services in terms of funding a network of people who will help everyone move away from the coast. You may not know this, but when you reach the end of your life, Medicare pays for, our public pays for a large suite of services, including a spiritual advisor, you know, any nursing care you need, any other care needed for the family to help everybody through a period of grief and transition. This may sound too difficult for our listeners to encompass, but actually coastal residents are going to be going through a similar kind of slow moving grief over the next few decades. We need to be publicly funding networks of services, not just buyouts, to help with this transition and to do it in a respectful and dignified way. Right now, we have a sort of spray of awful programs that aren't coping with the scale of the disaster that's already happening to thousands of Americans. And so that the science is strong, the scale of the issue is enormous, and we don't have programs that match the challenge we're being faced with. These uh, disappearing coastlines and rising sea levels are not just happening in Charleston. 
but around the nation and around the world, how have other countries dealt with these issues and making plans in comparison to how South Carolina and the U.S. government has overall handled their policy and development? Maybe give maybe some examples out there of like some countries that are doing it right. So far, there aren't very strong examples of countries who are doing it right because everybody's facing the same built-in uh, interest in maintaining the status quo that Charleston has. I have heard of and talked to people in the Netherlands who are now cautiously, even in the government, talking about the need to move to Germany. The Netherlands isn't even as threatened as Charleston is by high, high levels of sea level rise. But they have an enormous population protected by walls in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, that whole conurbation there. And those walls aren't going to be enough beginning in somewhere around 2050. So they're at least talking about building public housing farther inland. Jakarta announced a few years ago that the city was going to move the capital of Indonesia much farther inland. What the public may not know is that they just plan to move the civil servants and the capital buildings themselves, not the millions of people, ordinary people who live in Jakarta. There's no plan for them. New Zealand, Canada have a better planning than the United States does for what some people call managed retreat. I like to call it strategic relocation. But even their plans are vague and not particularly well-funded. And there's a lot of denialism and many structures set up to prevent the kind of long-term thinking that everybody needs to engage in. In these situations, does potable drinking water become an issue with rising sea level water? Well, uh, potable water has already become an issue for Miami or the outskirts of Miami and Broward County, that, that there, there's permeable limestone underneath the ground and seawater is seeping upwards into water you know, wells, and that's making it difficult. You know, even a very small trace of salt makes water undrinkable. Broward County is already seeing that. Charleston's lucky in that their drinking water comes pretty from pretty, pretty far inland, but they've got a secondary source of water that's only 30 miles away from Charleston up the Cooper River. And they are worried about the uh, tidal wedge of salt water saltwater moving farther up the Cooper River and gradually infiltrating the area where that potable drinking water is coming from 30 miles away. And that risk is being enhanced by the fact that Charleston dredged out its harbor to allow for very large shipping uh, operation right next to the peninsula of Charleston. So long story short, enormous economic growth and economic activity in Charleston has led to an increased risk to drinking water in that area. And then this is probably an issue that we see across the board in any areas, like you were talking about with with other examples across the world, that this is going to continuously be an issue, that we're not going to have access to safe drinking water and and the communities that are most risk, the frontline communities are the, the ones that are going to experience this first and foremost. Not right, going it's, to have access. I'm so sorry to speak over you. It's not a coincidence that Broward County has a lower income population by and large than Miami-Dade, and they're the ones facing the problems with drinkable water. Look, I'm from Santa Monica. I worried about drinking water when I was a kid because it seemed so improbable that Los Angeles was sitting there, depending on in part on the Colorado River. 
Uh, so this is just one of the drinking water issues we're facing. Uh, you know, droughts were, will cause others, but for coastal residents, the gradual infiltration of drinking water supplies by salt water is a substantial risk. What have been the proposed solutions from, let's say, the private sector? And do you believe that they have the power to fix the direct environmental impacts that Charleston is facing? And when I say the private sector, who who within the private sector is like, we can fix this? We can be your, we can be your savior. <laughs> well, interestingly, that giant development I talked about on the side of the, the peninsula of Charleston, this it's called the Union Pier Redevelopment Project. Along with the 1,600 condos and the 600 hotel rooms, they're proposing to raise that development 16 feet above the Cooper River and to provide lots of uh, pretty fancy infrastructure for treating stormwater, making sure that it goes uh, you know, away from the surface of land and uh, hooking into that seawall. So there's a private sector suggestion that you know, let us build this thing. We'll provide you with lots of tax dollars because we'll be built there and we'll help you with your stormwater infrastructure. The horrifying thing about all that is that it's sort of a game of musical chairs. The private mm-hmm. sector, the development, and then likely those developers, initial developers, will exit, leaving some small business, large business owner holding the bag with a piece of property next to a rapidly receding coastline. And so um, most of the good data about what's about to happen with sea level rise is actually in private hands. Far too little of it is made available to the public sector and certainly not for free. I don't think we should look to the private sector to solve this problem. They can certainly be working with the public sector to build new places to live that are high and dry and well-connected and safe and affordable. But it really is up to the public sector to make sure that the incentives and the planning and the structures are in place to harness the investment energies of the private sector to protect human beings. You quote a 2022 IPCC report on adaptation in your book in chapter 10. You state, only avoidance and relocation can remove coastal risks from the coming decades. Only avoidance and relocation can remove coastal risk from coming decades, from what we're going to see in the future. What must the people of Charleston and really all residents of low-lying coastal areas around the world do when coastal climate disasters become commonplace? Look, it's a problem for us in our day-to-day lives to imagine the grief that will accompany having to leave these beloved places. And the first step will be for coastal residents in Charleston, as and elsewhere, to simply acknowledge that the place where they live will not exist in a matter of decades, not centuries. And to begin with that acknowledgement, the process of planning ahead to shift locations. This will happen either in a gradual, well-planned, respectful way, or in a kind of Mad Max scenario where the richest people are able to do this on their own easily, and we leave to their own devices poor people and people of color without the resources to help themselves. And it is that enormous inequality in capacity to plan ahead that I I believe strongly our country and other countries needs to address sooner rather than later. 
what must we do? We must understand the risks. We must communicate the risks clearly to everybody. There should be at the federal level, somebody who wakes up every morning and worries about what's going to happen to these 13 million Americans over the coming decades, pulls together resources rather than right now, as we do, simply reacting to disasters with untold billions of dollars flooding in from 30 different federal agencies, by the way, that are pretty much uncoordinated. So we need to move from an uncoordinated reactive posture to a coordinated pre-planning posture. But it all begins with better, better communication, better data. We have horrible public maps right now of flooding potential and and an acknowledgement and acceptance that this is going to happen. And that will take, most importantly, leadership, leaders who can speak clearly without further polarizing our already deeply severed polity to uh, encourage all of us to just accept reality and begin to move forward as a nation into our better future. What does an equitable, well-planned relocation strategy look like for a place like Charleston? There are a host of things we could be doing in this sort of hospice-like set of network plans I'm, I'm suggesting. We could be giving people the opportunity to, you know, subsidizing people to move sooner rather than later and having that subsidy decrease over time. We could ask people who are living in the riskiest areas to, if they plan to stay, pay ever higher property taxes so that the risk of staying is matched to the premium attached to having to to getting the ability to stay there. We could gradually be decommissioning pieces of public infrastructure in very, very risky areas. We could begin right now by outlawing additional development in the riskiest areas. We could, there are so many levers, uh, tax uh, levers we can use to make it easier for developers to build in safer places. Lots of uh, subsidies and incentives for people to work with their neighbors in leaving as a group. So just be creative. And there's a lot that could happen. Just this past week, President Biden's economic team began suggesting that something along these lines has to start happening. They're talking about drawing down incentives from the infrastructure bill to communities that aren't planning in this way to say, if you're not starting to uh, stop development and increase the cost associated with living near the coast, you're not going to get federal money. So that's that's one way of starting. It's a little abrupt. What I'm worried about is that we'll see a huge collapse in coastal real estate before this gradual planning starts, that there will be a scramble and a panic, uh, a panic that anticipates and makes it much more difficult for this planning to happen. And if there is that scramble, and so if people are moving to now new areas, does this climate disruption that has sort of fueled this, well, I think it's probably more fueled by the human impact, but climate disruption being that, you know, is is going to get worse and worse and people are going to be forced out of these areas, does that then force more gentrification? So people are moving into other areas and then forcing people out once again. 
it, there's certainly a risk of that. And that, for example, is likely to happen in North Charleston, a separate city, which is on much higher ground and right next to Charleston. Right now, there are lots of Black residents of North Charleston. It's also, by the way, a place with the highest eviction rate in the nation. Matthew Desmond's documented that. There is a, a substantial risk that North Charleston will become the, the new center of the region and will become completely unaffordable for low-income people. So we can do better. We can do better. A lot of things we can do, like establishing land trusts, so you can't flip the land uh, and you can't make as much profit out of your housing. And that happens in a lot of Northern European countries where much more of the housing market is participated in by the government. So that housing becomes much more of a right rather than a commodity to be invested in. Uh, We could have uh, zoning rules that require that a certain amount of affordable housing is available in uh, these new communities and provide incentives for that to be built. We have the tools. We could afford what we care about. If we prioritized this planning process and the move away from the coast and we're constantly thinking about the need to avoid further displacement, we could get that done. Thank you, Susan. We're going to take a quick break, but we're going to come back. And I want to know about, like, how do you dismantle a historically protected area? And also talking about, you know, turning this into a buffer zone. And then I want to hear about the voices of the people in your book, some significant people that you highlight in this book. And I want to hear from them. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio and all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm, with host Jessica Aldridge and guest Susan Crawford, Harvard Law School professor and author. Susan, so we've been talking about Charleston, South Carolina, about rising sea levels, about relocation and doing this in a just and equitable way. As we said at the top of the show, Charleston is a historical place. It has got the gorgeous, you know, cobblestone streets and sort of this the 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 bottom part of the peninsula. I know might (laughs) might be bad for some, but you know, people look at this and go, "It's so beautiful, right?" You know, how do you dismantle a historically protected area with powerful and wealthy stakeholders? Well, nature's going to do it for us. Okay. (laughs) Uh, That actually is the answer. But if you want to keep a historic area like Charleston, build a lot of canals. There are streets running through the bottom peninsula there that used to be water. Maybe that water should come back. You daylight the water. That's the way like architects talk about it. You let the water resurface and you row up to those um, historic mansions and maybe provide more of a context for those mansions so that the people who go to Charleston on some kind of food tour understand the role that it plays in our in our history a little more deeply. Those powerful and wealthy stakeholders may not want to leave, but it might not be up to them ultimately. 
And very quietly, many of those houses on the Lower Peninsula are for sale. They're sitting on the market because if you're smart, you know that that's a deeply threatened area and you wouldn't want to buy there. But a lot of New Yorkers keep showing up and buying those houses. So one one way this happens is that current stakeholders are supplanted by newcomers who don't quite know what the risks are. Another answer is you dig some canals. Another answer is you uh, put up a plaque in a park saying what it used to be and acknowledge that it cannot be any longer. Uh, Not everything is forever. We believe these coastlines are static, but we have no power over them. Nature wants her land back at this point. And how do we give nature her land back? Once, Once the relocation, you know, a just relocation happens, how does the city transition the land to be a buffer zone? Well, most of uh, Charleston was marshland and it could become marshland again, wetlands, marshland. And those would be that those buffers would slow down wave action and absorb water. That would all be good. But it would just look the way it looked when the original settlers showed up with the waving grasses. It would just happen naturally and it would be beautiful. And people would still want to visit, but not so much the houses, more the water. In your book, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm, you centered the voices of people from within the community, and I would like you to share some of those stories. Tell us about Reverend Joseph Darby and his observation that there are very few Black people engaged with City Hall. It was very important for me not to speak for the Black residents of Charleston. I spent hundreds of hours interviewing several characters in the book, people who are uh, leaders in the community. And one of them, Reverend Joseph Darby, is a wise uh, mid-70s senior AME minister who told me that over the course of perhaps 10 interviews, all about what it is like to be Black in Charleston. He talked about the sort of benevolent, weird, paternalistic approach that uh, white Charleston leaders take to Black residents He told me that he'd learned over time never to be surprised by anything that happened in Charleston. You can be shocked, you can be horrified, but do not be surprised. He told me that he has noticed, and it's still true, that there are very few Black advisors to the mayor and city hall. There are Black residents of Charleston who are on the city council, but when it comes to the mayor, mayor's making decisions, not largely advised by Black residents. And He told me that it felt as if stronger voices, more assertive voices in the Black community were not voices that City Hall wanted to hear from. So Reverend Darby, who is doing a book event with me in Charleston in late April, is a tremendously uh, important leader in Charleston. I felt privileged to document his life story and center his voice in this narrative. And it sounds like you're saying the... Engagement in City Hall is, it sounds like it's by design and not by choice. You know, people's blind spots have blind spots in City Hall in Charleston, as far as I can tell. I think that everyone wants to believe that they are good and that they're not racist, but the structures in Charleston run so deep that it is very difficult for um, the current white leaders to even imagine that they exist. What about Michelle Mapp? You describe her as one of the city's most promising Black young leaders in Charleston who chose to go to law school to help address racial inequalities. 
Michelle Mapp is a tremendously inspiring person who I interviewed over the course of several years, four or five years, as she made the decision to leave her leadership role with the South Carolina Loan Fund, where she was finagling and encouraging development by businesses across the state uh, through funds coming in from other banks. Anyway, a very successful nonprofit leader. She decided to go to law school because she was sick of being told that South Carolina law wouldn't allow X, Y, or Z that, by the way, ended up harming the Black residents of South Carolina. I am happy to say that Michelle Mapp is now out of law school. She did very well at the Charleston School of Law and is now working with the ACLU on addressing the unfair treatment of renters in South Carolina. And she really should be mayor of Charleston. I wish she would run, but she has chosen instead to have an impact by working constantly to make life better for the Black residents of Charleston and everybody else as well. But she is very focused on the unfairness of life for Black Charlestonians. In your book, you speak about Quinita Frazier, who's a Black entrepreneur with the Gullah Geechee roots. So I have a a two-part inquiry here. Um, I first want to start by talking about the Gullah Geechee, and then we'll discuss Quinita Frazier. I have a feeling, and I might be wrong, but I have a feeling that a lot of people may not know about the Gullah Geechee. And can you please do us the honor of telling us about the Gullah Geechee? Who are they? Where do they reside? And how they are being affected by climate change, development, and displacement? So first, the Gullah Geechee, these are people forced to leave West Africa, number of countries in West Africa to come to the coast of South Carolina and Georgia, who were experts in growing rice and harvesting indigo, and were enslaved and uh, forced to work on plantations there. When they were freed, supposedly, after the Civil War, they were promised uh, 40 acres in a mule land and the means to work it along those coastlines. That promise was reneged upon. The Gullah Geechee stuck together and stubbornly, they loved the land, they stayed. They're very proud of their community and the uh, language they speak and the food and the customs. There's an entire Gullah Geechee corridor stretching up now that's been recognized uh, from from coastal Georgia up along the coastline. And Queenetha Frazier is a descendant and feels herself to be very much Gullah Geechee. She spoke Gullah at home and was educated in public schools along the coast of Charleston, coast of the lands to the west of the Charleston Peninsula. Queenetha Frazier taught me a lot about the pride of the uh, Gullah Geechee people and their joy in living and their close attachment to the land. They are at risk from several different directions of being developed out of home and land. Often the Gullah people didn't have wills, they didn't trust courts, and so their land was passed down through intestate succession, meaning there might be 55 current members of a generation who own some small portion of uh, a, a property and developers are able to pick off one or another of those uh, descendants. Maybe they've moved to the Northeast and don't care anymore about the land. But that has resulted in enormous displacement of Golgichi land owners along the coast. So they're at risk from that development, also at risk from rising waters. 
And I was privileged to spend a lot of time with Quinitha Frazier, learning about this background and hearing about what it's like to be a young entrepreneur in this setting. She really felt there was a ceiling in Charleston above which she would not be able to rise because of her race. And she decamped to Atlanta. Her mom is still uh, living in West Ashley and she visits Charleston constantly and is doing her best to work with nonprofits to change the profile uh, to make sure that the Black residents of Charleston have a voice in political processes. You had touched upon this, this air property rights issue. Why is this so important? I, I know that there's, you know, a lot of this area where the Gullah Geechee set up shop was, you know, set up homes and their farming were in areas where developers at the time were like, well, we can't do anything with this land. We don't want this here. You can have this. and they took it and 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 really built upon created community there created substance there and these areas are near the coastline yeah. so now you have all this development coming in saying well we kind of want this property we want to build homes here we want development here we've figured out how we can build here now and so because of these the air property rights issue that you were talking about they're losing that land and i just wanted to to have you just Describe that a little bit more so that, you know, people understand what's happening in those in in those communities. It's been very rapid. There's there were many, many communities of uh, Gullah Geechee descendants to the east of Charleston that have been gradually just wiped out by huge super malls and highways. And they're just it's gone all next to the coast there. And uh, Quinitha Frazier is from the west of the Charleston Peninsula. And that is now happening there. Somerville, this giant, again, I can't even think of a word to describe it. it. It Sprawl doesn't really capture it. It's just mile on mile of identical looking houses and cul-de-sacs. That ooze is spreading down from Somerville down to the coastline and engulfing lots of formerly Gullah Geechee land through heirs' property disputes, through plain old rapacious development and uh, the whole area has been given the moniker an opportunity zone. We've seen this in urban areas so by the state government so that the developers get tax breaks for developing there. And uh, meanwhile, Gullah people are wiped out. So it's a, it's a huge story of displacement. It's part of the tapestry of Charleston, and it has its own horrors because it's now being accompanied by the rise in risk and sea level rise as well. So many risks to the Gullah descendants in this area, some of which have already played out through property development and some of which are yet to come. Previously, when you and I spoke, you had even mentioned like some of this could be disguised as we're going to help you move away from the coastline and then the land is then thus built upon. So they're not the last owners and it's just sort of like a slap in the face, right? Right. And that that's why decommissioning land is so important, that once someone goes through the grief of giving up where they have lived and where they've loved their family, that land should become public so that nobody else gets the chance to then make a huge profit over what you've been forced to leave. So I interviewed the queen of the Gullah Geechee who told me that, Queen Quet, who told me that she was only going to leave once those people on Hilton Head were asked to leave. They leave, you know, Gullah Geechee will leave, but only when those white folks have to go first, that will she trust government, that it has any intention of treating her people fairly. 
And for our listeners, if you want to know more about the Gullah Geechee, Queenquet and has a social media following page, website, all of look at the Gullah Geechee, G-U-L-L-A-H. G-E-E-C-H-E-E. I think it's just very important to understand this history, and I don't think it's talked about enough in the United States. One of my last questions for you, Susan, before we we do some extended questions, as we always do when we tell our listeners to go and check out the extended version, which you can find at ecojusticeradio.org, Charleston is not unique in its inability to plan for the future. Sadly, this is happening all over uh, the United States and the world. Why is it important that the city of Charleston unite with other municipalities and other communities within the region to create a regional climate action plan? And, And what does that look like? What's so interesting about the whole issue of strategic relocation is that it's very locally determined. It's extremely local. So it is important. But no locality can do this alone, no one municipality. And uh, Charleston is surrounded by about a dozen other independent cities and would need to collaborate with all of them to discuss how to shift populations and what becomes the new center. This collaboration is enormously difficult because everybody has their own budget and they sit on their own bottom and they have no particular incentive to share. And that's why not only regional collaboration, but also changes at the state and federal level have to be made so that there are incentives and encouragement and tools and techniques that help regions uh, make this move. Look, this is a giant problem of governance. And right now, all the arrows are pointing in the wrong direction. So it would take real leadership to start pointing them towards greater collaboration and uh, greater recognition of the rapidity of the change that's about to hit the coastlines in the next decades. The movie Don't Look Up tried to tell this story that there's something coming towards us very quickly, but we're really good at ignoring it in our daily lives. And my hope is that uh, because people dream of Charleston, really think about visiting those restaurants and mostly white people, frankly, looking for moonlight and magnolias there in Charleston, uh, they will be taken aback by the spectral horror of what's about to happen and will encourage their elected leaders to work regionally at the state level and nationally to change the picture. But this will this will take a concerted effort at all levels. And, you know, we have a couple minutes. What what can people do? I mean, has there been movement on this for the regions to come together? Is there things that listeners can do? Is there, you know, what's the hope here that we can we can shift this change? Well, look, we live in a democracy and this is not a right-left issue. This is just a fact. So it should be possible to elect people who understand what's coming and are willing to take a long-term view. Right now, we have a huge mismatch between the length of a mayoral term, say, and the time in which uh, this process is going to have to happen. So you have to you know, because the mayor's only going to be there for a little while, he or she very much wants to get reelected and has no particular interest in changing how they operate. We need to find people who see the long-term stewardship obligation differently and elect them to office at every level. People who are willing to talk about this, 
people who understand the science, aren't scared by the science, and understand that there actually are opportunities for the private sector, for individuals in the years ahead to make a thriving life for everybody with a belly button, to have a dignified, respectful uh, way of approaching this. So we, so bottom line, vote for people who understand these issues, get them into office, keep asking questions, keep understanding what their realities are that are facing the coastlines. I recommend, uh, there's a site called the Coastal Flood Resilience Project, cfrp.info, has lots of information about policy uh, avenues ahead that could be best followed to get us to this better future. So I'd point people to that website and I'd point them to uh, being active in voting. And I think that can apply towards any action across, you know, wherever you live can take that recommendation. Last couple questions here before we um, extend this conversation that can be found on our website. Do you have any other resources? I know that you had mentioned CFRP.info, any other information where people can stay on top of the situation or any resources that you would recommend? You know, uh, The Guardian, which doesn't have a paywall, does a very good job of covering climate issues. So I would recommend that. There are U.S.-specific stories, but it's really doing a global job of focusing on, on climate change. And very importantly, it focuses on mitigation, like let's reduce emissions, mm-hmm. as well as adaptation. This book I've written is all about, all right, there are people suffering now, let's help them. Yeah. But uh, The Guardian does a good job of, of both sides of the issue. Places that do have paywalls but are good sources of information are the Times climate coverage. The New York Times has gotten very, very good, and similarly, the Washington Post. But really, The Guardian as a news outlet is doing the best job. And people should check out your book, correct? Um, You have multiple books, but then you have a book very specific to this. So lastly, where can people follow your efforts and where can they find your book, buy your book, support, get more information and support what you're doing? Well, thanks so much. The book uh, goes on sale April 4th and is available at your local beloved independent bookstore, as well as, of course, from your not-so-beloved large platforms. And I tweet at S. Crawford, at S. Crawford, and the book is distributed by Simon & Schuster and published by Pegasus, so look out for Pegasus as well. There are a growing number of people involved in this strategic relocation field, So just being aware that there's a field and finding those people, there's a professor at Delaware who's wonderful, A.R. Siders is her name. There's a professor at the University of Miami, Catherine Mach, M-A-C-H, watch her. And there are going to be many, many more people writing and talking about this issue. My book tries to pull the threads together and provide as many pointers as possible to the other uh, scholars and activists working in this field. Yeah, as you said, there's going to be many authors because sadly, I don't think this issue is going away anytime soon. Just to remind our listeners, the book, uh, Susan Crawford's book, is named Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. Definitely check it out. You can find all the information and resources we talked about today on our website, um, in the po- you know, right up for the podcast as well. And definitely go to our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to hear the extended version. Thank you, Susan. We're going to continue this conversation for a few more questions. But thank you for joining us today. It was a great pleasure to have you. Real pleasure to be with you, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you to our guest, Harvard Law School professor and author Susan Crawford, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon or visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org. Please connect with us on social media. You can find us at Eco Justice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, well, then you know what to do. Subscribe, share the episodes, and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a tax-deductible donation to the show. A project of SoCal 350 and Adventures in Waste, the show can be found on KPFK, KPFT, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Executive producer Jack Guy, producer and co-host Jessica Aldrich, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours. <laughs>